O perfect redemption. Uh, A phrase taken from the great hymn, uh, To God Be the Glory, which celebrates the glorious work of atonement that Christ our Savior has accomplished on our behalf. O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. It is this gospel of the cross that is the centerpiece and anchor of all our hope as Christians. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the very heartbeat of our life, the ground of our forgiveness, the marrow of our ministry, the substance of all of our preaching. And to sinners, to those of us who know ourselves guilty before a holy God, helpless to pay for our own sins, doomed to face eternal punishment, well, there is no sweeter sound in the world than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Every Christian is a student of Scripture, which means every Christian is a theologian. The Holy Spirit of God has enrolled every Christian into the university of the study of God, of God's Word and God's ways. And so we discipline ourselves to know the person of God, the triunity of God, the character and attributes of God, the person and work of Christ, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the doctrines of man and sin, the doctrines of the church and of the last things. But amidst all that delightful study, the Christian exclaims with the Apostle Paul, I determined to know nothing else than Jesus Christ than him crucified. There is no doctrine more excellent. There is no knowledge more pleasant. There is no course of study so worthy than the knowledge of the person of Christ and the work of atonement that he accomplished when he hung on that cross as the great substitute and savior of his people. Can I put it simply? We love the atonement. We love the cross. In that old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. And so what? So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. We cherish the cross. And so it has been our delight in this series of sermons to set our focus upon the doctrine of the atonement of Christ, to raise our affections, to delight in a Savior who has accomplished so glorious a work of salvation for us, who bore the full weight of our sin up to Calvary and extinguished our guilt before God who drank the full measure of the wrath of God that burned hot against us so that we might drink only from the cup of divine blessing, who abolished in his flesh the hostility of God against our sin, who poured out his own precious blood as the ransom price to redeem his people from the bondage of sin and death, and who did it all in perfect unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, carrying out that great triune plan of salvation devised in eternity past. Isn't that why you come to church on Sunday? 
to be reminded of those great truths of the gospel, to, as it were, bathe your soul afresh in the blood of Christ flowing from the cross, to to hear how that blood speaks pardoned to a burdened conscience laid down with sin, to look back to the cross and see that place where he made an end to all my sin. And so we've looked at that precious doctrine of atonement through the lens of the age-old, oft-debated, controversial question, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ accomplish this glorious work of salvation? Whose sins did he bear up to Calvary? Whose guilt did he extinguish? Whose freedom did he purchase? Was it every single individual who has ever lived throughout human history or only those whom the Father chose and gave to him in eternity past, those whom the Spirit draws to him in repentance and faith? Now, why, why ask it that way? Why study the atonement through that lens? Well, the reason that we've sought an answer to that controversial question is not because we are lovers of controversy or because we are overly infatuated with the minutia of what is merely theoretical. It's because the extent of the atonement is inextricably linked to the design and nature of the atonement, to the gospel itself. We've seen that to whom the atonement extends is a function of what the atonement is and what the triune God intended to accomplish by the work of Christ on the cross. And those are matters of gospel significance. The doctrine of the extent of the atonement is intensely practical because it concerns the sovereignty of God and the value of the blood of Christ. Sadly, the majority of professing Christians today have been taught a doctrine of the extent of the atonement that fundamentally undermines those very truths, that robs the cross of the very qualities that make it so glorious and so precious to sinners. See, a universal atonement, an atonement in which Christ dies in the place of all people without exception, even those who were not finally saved, undermines the sovereignty of our God. It suggests that he would save all people if he could, you know, that he sent Christ to die so that everyone would have the possibility to be saved, but that unbelievers' rejection of Christ thwarts the Father's designs to save them. We cannot consistently hold to a universal atonement without making God to be a failed Savior. Not only that, but a universal atonement also undermines the value of the blood of Christ. It suggests that there are some whom Christ died to save who fail to come into the possession of the salvation that Christ purchased for them, that that the the blood of the God-man stained with blood so divine, we sang. The blood of the God-man was insufficient to satisfy the wrath of God in the case of the many sinners who perish eternally for their sins. We've seen that when you universalize the extent of the atonement without universalizing the extent of salvation itself and saying it brings everybody to heaven, you empty the atonement of its inherent power to save and you make the real, decisive, determinative cause of salvation something other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
The center of gravity and salvation is shifted from the gracious work of the Savior to the faith or the decision of the sinner. Our faith becomes our Savior rather than Christ. Our believing rather than Christ's dying becomes the ground of our salvation. And so the blood of Christ is devalued and denigrated as insufficient to save those for whom it was shed. And so for those reasons, precisely because we love the cross, we seek to protect the cross from unwitting enemies, from well-intentioned underminings. We've sought to make the case that a perfect redemption must of necessity be a particular redemption, a redemption which, though it doesn't extend to every single individual in the history of the world, nevertheless, it does bring every single individual that it was accomplished for all the way home to heaven. We have seen that an atonement of unlimited power and efficacy must necessarily be limited in extent to those who actually enjoy its benefits. And who are they? They are the ones whom the Father chose in eternity past. They are the sheep whom he gave to the Son, the elect who were eventually granted those gifts of repentance and faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And at every turn, we have found those claims to be wholly supported by the text of Scripture. We do not find the Scriptures to be an obstacle to the doctrine of particular redemption, as so many allege. We find the Scriptures to be the very foundation of the doctrine of particular redemption. And we've sought to discover, discover Scripture's teaching on the particularity of the atonement in the following way, and especially for so many of you who are here with us uh, brand new, you're in the middle of a series on a very controversial subject, so welcome. It's a, it's a bit like jumping into 40-degree water in Russia in the winter, but just for those of you who haven't been here, I'm going to give a, a short recap of where we've been so far. First, we considered the most fundamental doctrine of Christian theology, the triunity of God. Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share an identical nature, they share an identical will. And that means the persons of the Trinity have the exact same intention for the atonement. It can't be that the Father is aiming to save some, and the Son aiming to save others, and the Spirit aiming to save still another group, not without fundamentally undermining the unity of the Trinity. The Father has chosen some. And not all. The Spirit, it's granted by everyone, regenerates some and not all. And therefore, the Son atones for that same some and not all. The persons of the Trinity are perfectly united in their intention for the atonement. Then we considered what that intention was. Why did the Father send the Son into the world? What was the purpose for Christ's death? And we found that Scripture uniformly identifies the Trinity's unified intention for the atonement as exclusively salvific. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not to make sinners savable, not to make salvation possible or available, not to make provision for salvation, but actually to save sinners. And so we concluded if God's intentions must certainly come to pass or he is not God, 
And if his intention for the atonement is not to make provisions or possibilities, but actually to save sinners, well, then all those for whom Christ died must certainly be saved. And since not all are saved, Christ's atonement is particular and not universal. The extent of the atonement is a function of the intent of the atonement. But then we moved past the design and into the nature of the atonement, into what Scripture says Christ actually accomplished by his death on the cross. And we found that Scripture speaks of Christ's death according to at least four themes or motifs, sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption, all comprising a perfectly effective substitution. And so in every way that the Bible talks about the atonement, it insists on the fact that it perfectly accomplishes everything it set out to do and that it was accomplished on a particular set, definite identity of individuals whom God has chosen to save and not on behalf of all without exception. So in other words, a propitiation the atonement, as a propitiation, the atonement actually satisfies the wrath of God. But if there are some people who suffer under God's wrath for eternity as the just punishment for their sins, well, then it's plain that Jesus was not the propitiation for those people's sins. If Christ redeemed all without exception from the curse of the law, Galatians 3, but a great portion of those redeemed remain in bondage under the curse of the law for eternity, well, then Christ's redemption does not really redeem us from the curse of the law, does it? The efficacy of the atonement implies the particularity of the atonement. And so, as we've said, when you universalize the extent of the atonement, you necessarily undermine the efficacy of the atonement. And then in our last two messages... We aim to set the accomplishments of Christ's work in the context of his being the great high priest and mediator of the new covenant. As our high priest, he came to do the work of a high priest, which we saw was the twofold work of sacrifice and intercession. And we found these two functions of high priestly ministry are so inextricably linked that they are co-extensive. The high priest offered sacrifice for everyone for whom he would intercede. And he interceded for everyone for whom he offered sacrifice. And the same we found was true for the high priestly ministry of Jesus. He offers himself as a sacrifice for the very same number for whom he intercedes before the Father presently in heaven. And yet Jesus himself tells us, while he is still here on earth, in the middle of his high priestly prayer, he do, there are some for whom he does not intercede. John 17, 9, he prays to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so, since the work of sacrifice and intercession are coextensive, and since intercession is limited to the elect alone, we found another argument that the extent of Christ's atonement is limited to the elect alone. We also spent time considering what it meant that Christ was the mediator of the new covenant. We found that since his blood is nothing other than the blood of the new covenant, he purchased by that blood nothing other than the blessings of the new covenant. And we saw 
that Jeremiah 31 told us that those blessings at minimum include regeneration, the forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which means those who will not finally be regenerated, indwelt by the Spirit and forgiven, are not partakers of that blood of the new covenant. So all of that constitutes a framework of biblical teaching about the design and nature of the atonement, the unity of the Trinity, the singular salvific intention of God, the efficacious nature of the Son's saving accomplishments, the unified work of priestly sacrifice and intercession. And I mentioned at the beginning of the series that the reason discussion on the extent of the atonement usually breaks down so quickly into unhelpfulness is because people aim to debate the extent of the atonement divorced from this very framework of the Bible's teaching on what the atonement is and what the atonement was designed by God to do. And so they just volley proof texts back and forth. This text says many, this text says all, and on and on it goes. But the way around that stalemate is to wed those comments on all and many to the framework of what the Bible teaches about the whole of the doctrine of the atonement. And so since we have done that, now we are ready to appeal to those several texts of Scripture that comment directly on the extent of the atonement and which explicitly identify the objects of the atoning work of Christ to be a particular people. And so that's what we're going to do with the rest of our time this morning. The rest of the message breaks down into two parts. First, we're going to consider several key terms that designate the scope of Christ's atonement to be limited to the particular people his Father has given him. Seven key terms, in fact. And then we'll answer another significant objection that non-particularists raise against that very point that I'll make. So in the first place, let's consider seven key terms, just briefly, that Scripture employs to speak of the identity of whom Christ died for. We, can, we could call them seven particularizing designations, although I think Phil would make fun of me for saying that. So I said seven key terms. But se for those of you who are, you know, want extra credit, seven particularizing designations Words and phrases that characterize the objects of Christ's atonement as necessarily particular rather than universal. Number one is his people. The, number one, his people. And turn with me to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. When Joseph learns that Mary has become pregnant, he plans to call off the marriage. But an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him that Mary has not committed adultery, but the child she, that, that was conceived in her womb was by the Holy Spirit. And the angel says to Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 21, Don't divorce her. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus or Yeshua, where we get you know, Joshua in the Old Testament, means Yahweh saves. And here, the angel tells Joseph whom Yahweh will save by the atoning work of Jesus, namely, his people. Well, well who are his people? Well, they're the people that belong to him because the Father has given them to him. 
You might remember that scene in Acts chapter 18 where Luke narrates a discouraging moment in Paul's ministry in Corinth. The Jews in the synagogues resisted the gospel and blasphemed. And Paul says, uh, your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. Well, apparently, Paul had become fearful of the danger that had awaited him in Corinth because of the severity of the opposition. And so the Lord Jesus comes to Paul in a night vision and tells him, Acts chapter 18, verse 9, do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, what does Jesus mean, I have many people in this city? Was there a, a group of already converted Christians in Corinth that Paul just didn't know about who would help him fight off the crowds looking to do him harm? No. Jesus means that there are many people whom the Father had already given him, people that he has by donation from the Father in eternity past, but who have not yet come to faith in him. Jesus is comforting Paul by saying, don't be afraid, keep speaking the gospel because it's by your gospel preaching that these lost sheep who already belong to me will be brought into the fold. Your preaching, Paul, will lead to the conversion of sinners because there are many of my elect people ready to hear the gospel right now in Corinth. Now, not everybody in Corinth belonged to Christ. Not everybody was his people, but these were. He says something very similar in John chapter 10 and verse 16. After saying that uh, he, Jesus, after Jesus says he lays down his life for his sheep, a passage we'll return to in a moment, he says in John 10, 16, I have, present tense, other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so do you see it? There, there are sheep who are not yet in the fold. They're not saved but nevertheless, they are those whom Christ has. He says, I have them now, even though they still need to be brought in. And so, Titus 2.14 says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Christ has died to redeem and purify a people for his own possession. A people who are his, his people. And since there are people in the world, sadly, who do not belong to Christ, people whom Yeshua does not save from their sins, therefore his people does not refer to all without exception, but only those who will eventually be brought to salvation, the elect of God alone. A second particularizing designation, number two, is the word many, which we see in many verses. Matthew 20, 28, and it's parallel in Mark 10, 45, both say, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a comment that echoes the promise of Isaiah 53, 12, which says that the suffering servant bore the sins of many. 
We spoke in a recent sermon about the fact that Jesus' blood was the blood of the new covenant. At the Last Supper, Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28, Jesus gives the disciples the communion cup and says, drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. In Luke 22, they'll say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then in the latter half there of Matthew 26, 28, he says, this is, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood will be shed in his atoning death for the forgiveness of sins, and he says it's poured out for many. Similarly, you have uh, Hebrews chapter 2, where the author identifies Jesus as the merciful and faithful high priest who has come to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And in this context of his propitiatory death, just a few verses earlier in verse 10, the author says that God is bringing many sons to glory by means of the suffering of the author of their salvation, namely the sufferings of Jesus. And so the high priest's propitiatory sacrifice accomplished by his saving sufferings is that which Scripture calls bringing many sons to glory. Many. And then later on in Hebrews 9 and verse 28, the author says that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Not all people without exception, but the many who are his people. Number three, Jesus died for his sheep. Back to John 10. Jesus died for his sheep. And you're familiar, John 10 and verse 11, Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. He says then after that, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In Hebrews 13, 20, the author refers to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. And that metaphor is intended to emphasize the personal bond and union that exists between Jesus and all those for whom he lays down his life. He calls them his own. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Back in verse 3 of John 10, he says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. These his sheep, his own, whom he knows by name. These are the ones for whom the good shepherd lays down his life. These sheep are to be distinguished from the goats. Matthew 25, 32 to 33. Jesus says that in the judgment, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, so also he will put his sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The sheep will be saved Matthew 25, 34, but the goats, verse 41, will depart into eternal fire. And so there is a distinction, an exclusiveness in this term, sheep. Well, not only do we have his people, the many and the sheep, we also have, number four, the children of God. The children of God. And for that, we turn to John 11, just the next chapter over. And starting in verse 49, we learn that Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, 
prophesied, verse 51, that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, he says, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, these children scattered abroad can't refer to anyone who were, was presently believing in Jesus at that time because the good news of what Christ had accomplished in Israel hadn't yet been taken to the nations. He was still in the midst of accomplishing it in John 11. But even as we saw before, they are nevertheless regarded as the children of God. They are the sheep of another fold. They are those who belonged to God by virtue of his choice of them for salvation before the foundation of the world. John is saying that Jesus wasn't only going to die for the nation of Israel, he was going to die for all the children of God that the Father had elected in eternity past. Jesus would die for all of God's elect. We see the same concept back in Hebrews 2. You can turn back there with me if you're ambitious. But starting in verse 11, I think it is important for you to see this in your own Bibles here. Starting in verse 11 in, in Hebrews 2, it says, both he who sanctifies, that is Christ whose death saves and purifies his people, and those who are sanctified, that is the beneficiaries of Christ's sanctifying death, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, which is just a precious verse that I wish I could stop, stop on and meditate on. Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. But then the author cites a couple of Old Testament texts to substantiate his point, and then in verse 13, he quotes Isaiah 8, 18, and, these, and calls these brethren of Christ the children whom God has given to the Son, the children whom God has given to me. Now, of course, we know that not all without exception are the children of God. Back in Hebrews 2.12, the author tells us the son is going to praise the father along with his brethren, these children, in the assembly of the righteous. Well, that certainly isn't true of all without exception. All without exception do not praise the father with Christ in the assembly of the righteous. And indeed, Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 8, 42, if God were your father, in other words, if you were the children of God, you would love me. But you don't, and so you're not. And he tells them, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And so Jesus says he dies for the children of God, not for all without exception, not for the children of the devil. And then fifth, we have the term friends. And for this, we turn to John chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you that 1 John 4.10 says that the greatest expression of the love of the Father is His sending His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, by His atoning death, Jesus demonstrates the greatest love a man can have. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. 
for his friends. Now, the term friends here is a necessarily particularizing designation. It excludes those who are the enemies of God, whom Scripture doesn't hesitate to speak about. 1 Corinthians 15.25 says Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus washes the feet of the friends for whom he dies. He tramples under his feet the enemies. Philippians 3.18 speaks of the enemies of the cross of Christ. If Jesus' saving love is expressed in no greater way than that he lays down his life for his friends, and yet there exists such a thing as his enemies, then he did not lay down his life for his enemies, for all without exception. A sixth key term is the word church. And you see that in Acts chapter 20. As Paul, in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, charges his fellow pastors, verse 28, to shepherd the church of God. Shepherd the church of God, which he, that is Christ, God the Son, purchased with his own blood. Christ has purchased the church with his blood. The Apostle John uses the same language of purchased with blood to describe the atonement in Revelation 5, 9. The song of the saints in praise of the Lamb is what? Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now notice what John doesn't say there. He doesn't say you have purchased for God with your blood every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The purchase, he says, that Christ has made is men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The purchase that he made with his own blood is the purchase of the church of God. And so Paul says in Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It is for that eschatological assembly of the Lord and not those excluded from that assembly for eternity for whom Christ has given himself in his atoning death. And so we have had his people, the many, the sheep, the children of God, friends, and church. That brings us to number seven, the elect. And that's right. Scripture explicitly uses the term elect itself to describe those for whom Christ died. And we see that in Romans chapter eight. So many of us are familiar with that great golden chain passage in verses 29 and 30 where Paul says that everyone that God has chosen, he calls, justifies, and glorifies. We have the, the span of salvation from eternity past, right, for new and predestined to the moment of conversion called and justified all the way to eternity future glorified. And while it might seem like Paul skipped straight from redemption planned to redemption applied and skipped over redemption accomplished, he actually discusses the atonement in verses 32 and 33 of Romans 8. 
He says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then Paul names the us all for whom the father delivered over his son to death. He says, verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? So the ones for whom the father has delivered Christ over unto his atoning death are named in the next sentence as the elect. Christ has died for the elect. Now you say, how can those who reject a particular redemption deny what's right there in those texts? Well, in response to all of those particularizing designations that identify the objects of Christ's death as a particular people, opponents of particular redemption raise the following objection. They say, well, sure, the Bible clearly affirms that Christ laid down his life for his sheep. But, they say, the Bible does not say that Christ dies only for his sheep. He died for the world, and so surely the sheep are in the world, and so they're part of that. Romans 8 says Christ was delivered over for the elect, but it doesn't say that Christ was delivered over for the elect alone. Mike, you are treating Scripture's emphasis as if it was exclusiveness. And just because Scripture, scripture emphasizes some for whom Jesus died, it doesn't necessarily mean to exclude others he died for. And that is a reasonable objection especially given the fact that in other passages, Scripture does speak of Christ giving his life for the world and dying as a ransom for all. It's reasonable to question whether we should read these texts that emphasize Christ's work on behalf of the elect to the exclusion of the non-elect. Well, that brings us to the second part of our sermon, this objection that if you wanted a name for, you know what they call it? There's another one Phil will make fun of me for. The, the name is called the negative inference fallacy. The idea that stating one thing means that you're, you're, you're inferring that the negative is not also true. It's, it's the sheep, sure, but it's not, not also the goats. Anyway, if you wanted a name for it, that was what it is. Or you could call it the not also the goats objection. I don't know. <laughs> How do we respond? Well, in the first place, we need to acknowledge that the universalistic language is significant, right? There, just like there are particularizing designations concerning the scope of the death of Christ, there are also universalizing designations like all in world. And we can't just overlook those passages. But as we've seen several times in our series, references to all and the world need to be interpreted in their context. And when they are, we find that none of them teach that Christ died for all without exception or that Christ died for every person who has ever lived in the world. When properly interpreted in their context and allowed to speak according to the sense the authors intended, they speak of all without distinction, Jews as well as Gentiles, people in Asia Minor as well as all scattered throughout the whole world. Or all kinds of people, like older men and younger men, older women and younger women, slaves and free men, people throughout the whole world, but never genuinely every single individual in history. And so, in addition to the text that we've discussed already in our series, I'm actually going to address many of those universalistic passages in my next sermon. 
But in the first place, if you, if you can sort of receive that line of argumentation on credit for a bit, like I promised to prove it to you, right? No text properly interpreted teaches that Christ died for all without exception. And when that becomes plain, the objection that we're dealing with is nothing more than an argument from silence. Second, it's important to reiterate that these seven particularizing designations are not presented in a vacuum, divorced from the Bible's theological framework for the doctrine of the atonement. This argument is more than lobbing proof texts aiming to cancel out alls with many's. It's saying, given the unity of the Trinity, given the single saving intention of the atonement, given the inherent efficacy of Christ's accomplishments, given what it means for Christ to be the priest of his people and what it means that no blessing purchased by Christ is enjoyed apart from union to him that can never be severed, in, in light of the intricate interconnectedness of everything that God has to say on this matter, consider how these particularizing designations fit so seamlessly in that context. When you view them against that backdrop, these passages are far more than proof texts. They're the coherent conclusion of the whole Bible's doctrine of particular and definite atonement. Think about what you would have to deny that we've seen Scripture clearly teach to interpret those universalizing passages otherwise. It means there's disunity in the Trinity. It means that God intended multiple different things by the atonement. It means that the, the accomplishments of Christ aren't accomplishments at all, but mere provisions that are often thwarted by the sinner's sovereign unbelief and that Christ's priesthood has no bearing on his work of atonement. All of that is foolishness. So it's not just proof texting, it's, it's setting it in that, that web, that wonderful theological framework that's perfectly consistent with those particularizing words. A third response to the objection is that it seems to assume, the objection itself seems to assume that an author would have to include the word only for us to interpret an expression as necessarily exclusive or discriminating. But I say that that assumption is unwarranted. We don't speak that way to one another, right? If I, you know, we put the kids to bed, we realize we ran out of milk. I tell my wife, okay, I'm gonna go to the grocery store. I'm gonna go to Stater Brothers and, and you know, grab something. I don't have to tell her, oh, hey, by the way, I'm not going to the movies. <laughs> I'm not going to the gym. I'm not going to a restaurant. Now, maybe those of you with suspicious wives need to say that, right? <laughs> those of you who have not earned her trust or whatever, um, no, but that's not the way that we talk, right? I, okay, I'm going to the store. W wait a second. Are, are you going to church too? No. Why would you assume that? Well, you didn't say only the store, right? We don't talk like that to people. And we also, more than that, we don't, we don't consistently require that standard of a host of texts of Scripture. Imagine trying to apply that standard to texts that we all know. Genesis 12, 2, when God promises, I will make, promise to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. He doesn't say he'll make a great nation of Abraham only. And yet we understand that Israel alone is Yahweh's covenant nation. Colossians 2.9, Paul says of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Ah, oh, but Paul doesn't say it only in him. But even so, we ought not to think that maybe there was another one in whom the fullness of deity might have dwelt. No, the very nature of these categorical statements, along with their contexts, 
gives us enough reason to read them as particularizing and discriminating, even without the appearance of terms like only and alone. Fourth, a fourth response is to make the observation that it seems easier to explain how all and world don't necessarily mean all people without exception throughout history because it can mean all kinds, all without distinction, and so on. Easier to explain that than it is to explain how particularizing language is intended to be genuinely universal. In other words, if the writers of Scripture believed that Jesus died for everyone who ever lived, why would they ever limit the scope of his death with necessarily exclusive designations like sheep and church and friends and many? And especially if they believed, like so many advocates of a universal atonement do, that what makes the love of God manifested in the death of Christ so great is that it embraces everybody. Don't you hear that so much? That, you know, my God's love is so great and so expansive that it just embraces everybody under this universal atonement, this cross that covers everybody's sin. Well, if the glory of the death of Christ consisted in its universal breadth, why not always say all and world? Why ever limit the death of Christ to his people, to the children of God, and so on? And so as much as we have to explain the alls and worlds in context, which we'll do next time, the other side has to explain why it would ever make sense to deviate from saying all and world. But then in the fifth place, fifth and finally, we respond to this objection by observing that the contexts in which these particularizing designations appear constrain us to interpret them as necessarily exclusive. So for example, in Ephesians 5, when Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, he does so in a context in which he makes Christ's sacrificial love for the church the pattern or standard for a husband's love for his wife. Well, husbands must love their wives in a way that is manifestly special and different from the way they love anyone else. But if Christ's love for the non-elect issued in his laying down his life for their sins, just as he did for his own bride, and if husbands were called to love their wives after that pattern, then the measure of a husband's love to his wife would be indistinguishable from the measure of his love to any other woman. And I think you'll agree with me, ladies, that that is an interpretive bridge we are not willing to cross. Paul does not mean to endorse polygamy. Christ has one bride and he, and he gives himself up for her. And the doctrine of union with Christ coupled with the necessarily exclusive imagery of the marital union constrain us to understand Paul to be saying that the church as the bride of Christ is the only one for whom he gives himself up in his atoning death. I mean, think about what we were talking about before, right? Well, this is my wife, your only wife? Yes, right? Like, I don't think I need to say that when I say wife. It's necessarily particularizing. It's necessarily exclusive. It excludes everybody else and every other woman in the world who is not my wife from the category my wife. So also does church exclude every other person in the world as the ones for whom the son, the, the, the bridegroom, lays down his life. 
We spoke of Romans 8 earlier, where Paul called the us all for whom Christ was delivered over in death, God's elect. And on its face, the term elect is an exclusive discriminating term. It implies there are some who were chosen and some who are not. But beyond even that, Paul says in verse 32 that the us all, the elect for whom Christ has died, will be freely given all things along with Christ by the Father. In the context of Romans 8, where Paul is discussing salvation from eternity past to eternity future, these all things are the saving benefits of God's grace. In verses 35 to 39, Paul says this same us, or same us all, will never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's plain that since there will be some who do not receive all the blessings of salvation, and who will be separated from the love of God in Christ for eternity, Paul certainly means to speak of Christ dying for some and not others. Now the response comes back, no, 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 you don't understand. Paul's speaking about the elect in this verse, but just because he speaks about the elect here doesn't mean that Christ hasn't died for more than the ones that he mentions here. And the answer to that is, yes, it does. Because it would undo Paul's entire argument in this passage to suggest that. His whole point is to give encouragement and assurance of salvation to those for whom Christ died. Who's going to bring a charge? Christ Jesus is he who has died. And so to do that, he lists all these saving blessings they enjoy and he explicitly grounds them in the death of Christ on their behalf. If not everyone for whom Christ died is guaranteed to receive those blessings, if someone could bring a charge against them or could separate them from the love of God in Christ, why would Paul make Christ's death the very basis of their comfort? It'd be no consolation at all. If Christ died for the reprobate as well as the elect, the troubled Roman Christians could say, Paul, what does Christ's death have to do with my security? He died for everyone without exception, and millions are separated from his love forever in hell. It doesn't work. Paul can't make the death of Christ the very ground of their assurance of salvation if that very death of itself doesn't infallibly secure the salvation of everyone for whom Christ dies. And so the objection fails again. And then one last one, we, we've seen it before, but John chapter 10 you hear, you hear it all the time. Yeah, he dies for the sheep, but it doesn't mean he doesn't die for the goats. But actually, yes, it does. In the first half of the chapter, Jesus says he lays down his life for his own, for his sheep, whom he knows by name. But then in verse 26, he speaks directly to the Pharisees. And he says to them, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, first of all, don't miss that. He doesn't say you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He doesn't say that goats turn into sheep by believing in him. No, he says the prerequisite for having faith is first being a sheep. The reason you don't believe, Pharisees, is because you're not among those sheep whom the Father has chosen and given to me before the foundation of the world. Now, for Jesus to say, I lay my life down for the sheep, and then to immediately identify certain people as those who are not his sheep. That is to say almost as plainly as it could be said that he did not lay down his life for those Pharisees. I lay my life down for the sheep and you aren't the sheep. 
I mean, that, so contrary to what is so often asserted, this passage does say that Jesus doesn't lay down his life for the goats. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and not for those who aren't his sheep. And so that objection fails on every count. And where does that leave us, friends? It leaves us once again having vindicated the glorious cross of Christ from the denigrations of an unlikely, unintentional enemy called universal atonement. If we're going to cherish that old rugged cross in all of the fullness of its glory, in all of the plenitude of its power to save, we have to protect our thoughts against any species of argumentation that would empty the cross of its power that would curtail its efficacy, that would downgrade its effectiveness, that would turn it into a provision rather than a victorious accomplishment, that would supplant it as the decisive, determinative cause of our salvation. And so we protect the particular extent of the atonement because it is only a particular redemption that saves everyone for whom it was accomplished that can be a perfect redemption. And so for those of you who are here today and remain outside of Christ, those of you who are not yet a believer in Jesus, I call you to repentance and faith in this perfect redemption that our Savior has accomplished. You say, but wait, what if I'm not a sheep? What if I'm not one of the many? How can I know whether I'm one of the particular people for whom Christ died? And the answer to that is, God never calls you to penetrate into the eternal counsels of the divine decree to determine whether you're elect or not. The call of Christ to sinners is not to determine whether the Father has given them to him in, from eternity. The call of Christ to sinners is come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you know where that verse comes? Right after Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except the one the Son chooses to reveal to him. Jesus saw no contradiction between a, a limited particular election and atonement and a universal gospel call that says, everyone who feels the weight of their sin, come to me and find rest. Jesus says, it's the one who comes to me, John 6, 37, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus says, I've come to, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so, friend, are you a sinner? Of course you are. You're like the rest of us. You've broken the law of God. You've disobeyed him. And so you lie open to the just punishment of his righteous wrath. And yet, precisely your being, a sinner, qualifies you to come to this Christ. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. Well, praise God, I qualify. All the warrant you need to come to Christ is that you are a sinner and that you need just such a savior as Jesus who has fulfilled the very demands of the law of God that you have broken, who has died the very death that you deserve to die as a result of your crimes, fully satisfying the just demands of God's holiness, leaving no stone unturned in his perfectly efficacious atoning death, and then who has risen again in victory over sin and death and now freely offers cleansing and forgiveness and righteousness to everyone who will come to him and drink of the water of life. It is just such a full and free salvation that his perfect redemption has secured. And it is yours for the taking. If only you lay hold of Christ this morning by faith alone. 
Only way to know whether you're a sheep or not is whether you hear the shepherd's voice and follow after him. Come to Christ. Turn from your sin. Abandon any confidence in yourself to contribute even a little bit to your own righteousness before God. And trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And his death will avail for you just as it has for us precisely because it is a perfect redemption. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would grant saving faith to those whom you have this morning. Those whom you've given to the Son and yet those whom you've not yet drawn into the fold decisively by the sovereign work of the Spirit. I pray that you would bring them through the preaching of your gospel founded upon a perfectly sufficient cross, a perfectly accomplishing victorious sacrifice that you would grant confidence to sinners that all has been done. It is finished and we, t- we are to rest all of our hopes for salvation and righteousness squarely upon the shoulders of the one who died for us. We love the cross as we said at the beginning. And so we seek to protect the cross from any wrong ways of thinking that subtly undermine what makes it beautiful and glorious and sweet to sinners who have no other hope for salvation. And I pray that as saints, you would equip us. You would equip us to understand what happened to us rightly. Thank God that it has happened to us. But Lord, please give us the mind of Christ to understand your word that we would know what it is that happened to us so that we might return to you the praise that you're worthy of, so that we might adequately train those who we're responsible for, whether our children or others in our Bible study or whoever it is within the church of God to entrust to faithful ones the faithful sayings that will entrust them to others also so that the truth of God may pass from one generation of the church to the next until you return. We do thank you for the cross. We pray that you would get what you're worthy of in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.